before I entered Uber and Lyft, I thought corporate culture was something that was just written about by people who wanted to plant flowers. And it wasn't really important or real. Travis is a really good person who has made some bad choices. Travis is brilliant. He's monomaniacal. I think Travis knows he made mistakes. Travis knows he set up a culture that after he observed it, he knew it was too fragile and it wasn't inclusive. It was a Chicago economics old school seminar every day. Welcome to a load of BS podcast with me, Daniel Ross. My guest today is sports nut, almost pro golfer, but primarily professor at the University of Chicago and chief economist at Walmart, John List. Now, just when you thought we were about to dive into the politics of diverging golf tours, instead, we're going to turn our attention to ride hailing companies Uber and Lyft, where John was also chief economist. What was Travis Kalanick really like to work for? John also recently published The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. And so we're also discussing how to scale a business and we bring it to life with the story of the failed Jamie's Italian restaurant chain. John's passion is using field experiments to explore economic questions and so our conversation is filled with great stories from John's time in the White House to rideshare to groceries and even collaboration with DARPA. Let's get to it. John, welcome to a load of BS. I'm delighted you're here with me. Thanks so much for having me, Daniel, and I can't wait to start BSing with you. Absolutely. Likewise, perfect for a Friday. Now, as one of the most respected and well-published economists in the world, and I don't think that's an exaggeration, John, you've become particularly well-known for your work in field experiments, by which I mean getting outside of the laboratory and talking to real people. Now, it strikes me as axiomatic of any scientific discovery that going into the field is just the most natural thing to do as an economist or academic of any type, right? Like using the real world as your lab seems so obvious. Otherwise, you're just floating in a world of theory and speculation, aren't you? I appreciate that nice intro. Thank you very much. You know, look, I think you're half right. I think when you deal with humans and any species that is both a product of their internal preferences and their social creatures. Of course, you want to explore their behaviors and the effects of your interventions in the real, let's say, situation. But on the other hand, if you're a hard scientist and gravity works the same around the earth and it works the same in the lab, you have these behavioral, let's say, laws, a quantitative law that is ubiquitous, then it's okay. To, to be in certain tightly controlled settings. I don't think we were afforded that luxury as social scientists. I think it's okay to start in the lab, but I think you always want field evidence. And my career since the early 90s has been built on using the world as my lab. And I suspect that most of your listeners have been a subject in one of my experiments. And I wanna thank them all for helping me learn about how economics can describe the real world. But in the end of the day, you're right. I bring economics, I bring behavioral economics, I bring those lenses along with field experiments to try to learn about what works and why and try to make positive change in the world. I mean, do you find that there are academic, even in the social sciences, who are publishing papers without the requisite fieldwork? Is that an issue? I think if your final goal is to change the world and figure out what works in the real world, in many cases, it's important to start in the lab and to start in an artificial setting that can give us some initial insights. But I don't think you want to stop there. I think if you stop there, we are cheating ourselves. We're not using the scientific method as broadly as we should. So I'm fine starting in the lab. Some of my work does. But if you start and end in the lab, in the social sciences, I think that's a mistake. If you start and then end in the field or, and then go back to the lab, a lot of times lab speaks to field, field speaks back to lab in much the same way theory speaks to empiricism back and forth. That's healthy. And that's how we make scientific advances. 
I think that's, that feels absolutely right and intuitive to me. That balance is critical. One without the other doesn't work. One thing I observe about you, John, is this the range of your, with your economics and behavioral science work and interests, both academically and corporately. I mean, is that variety something that you actively seek out? Daniel, I love that. that that's a great question and a, and a great insight. So at my point in my career today, I'm searching for ideas, problems, and settings where I can make the most positive change. I recently moved from Lyft chief economist to Walmart chief economist, mainly because the sandbox is bigger. I can take on a lot more scientific questions. And if I come up with some neat solutions, the footprint is just much bigger. I can really affect the world at a much larger scale. Now, when I was first starting my career, early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, it was more about opportunities. I knew I wanted to use field experiments to help understand economics and help understand and test economic theory. So at the beginning, nobody believed in it. So what did I do? I went to baseball card conventions and I went to these conventions to buy, sell and trade because I could fund my own research and I could also test economic theory in the wild, so to speak. Now, as my way of thinking became, let's say, more ingrained in economics, people started to come to me. In the late 90s, some charitable organizations came to me and said, we need your help to raise charity dollars or to raise philanthropy. Of course, I said, this is a unique opportunity. If we can do this in a field experiment, I will help you raise money. So now I start a research agenda in the late 90s on the economics of charitable giving, which continues today. So I think over my career, I have taken on different opportunities and I've had different goals in part because my opportunity set has changed over time. Yeah. Maybe we'll come back to your work on charity a bit later, something that interests me as well. But just thinking about your career path, I wonder then, I mean, have you also worked, by the way, in the White House, which you didn't mention, but having worked there, then you've done both Uber and Lyft. So you've covered the two major players in that category. <laughs> and now, of course, you're the chief economist at Walmart. I mean, what have you brought? What did you bring from each role to the next? In other words, what does government teach you about taxi supply and demand, which teaches you about grocery shopping? There are a few threads that connect all of these lives. So you're right. I worked in the White House 20 years ago. I worked for a few years for Bush too. And what I learned there was if you sit around a table with really smart people and you use economics 101 arguments, which are very persuasive and very powerful, if you can articulate those types of insights in a way that everyone can understand, you can have very powerful influence. Whether you're talking about climate change, whether you're talking about fair trade coffee, whether you're talking about trade negotiations, it's all the same. What I also learned there is when we tried something in New Jersey and it worked, we always talked about scaling. And we talked about, well, it worked in New Jersey, will it work in other jurisdictions? And can we scale that? And then when I moved to Uber and Lyft, it was about a two-sided market, but it was still about, can you make economics 101 arguments in a compelling way that can help drive and help decision makers? Yes, you can. But then it was even more about scaling. Around every corner, you had brilliant people talking about their ideas and whether their ideas could scale. But what I noticed was it was slowly moving to more supply-side considerations. And what I mean by that is in government, it was always about the demand side or who's going to benefit from the idea and what will the allocation of benefits be? You know, will my jurisdiction get it or will yours? With very little thinking about the supply side or the cost side. And I think that's because government is a monopolist. And as a monopolist, you don't care about getting economies of scale and setting up barriers to entry, et cetera. You're just trying to get the benefit flow. So even though it was still about scaling and still about Econ 101 arguments, it was it was slightly different. And now at Walmart, I'm just getting started, to be fair. I've, I've only worked there for a little over three months now, but it, it's still the same discussions. But what's interesting is if I can make subtle changes in the supply chain, and let's say I can save some fuel. And what I'm thinking about now is my work with Robert Medcalf and Greer Gosnell in Virgin Atlantic Airways, 
where we help them save millions of gallons of fuel. And that saves a bunch of climate forcing emissions. So that's good stuff. But now if I can do that at Walmart, look at Walmart. I mean, their footprint, if you think about Walmart as a country, they're like as large as Belgium, right? They're the 25th largest country in the nation in terms of GDP. So if you can make those types of insights that we've made in other firms, and then you can expand that all the way out, you have a really good chance to scale and really change the world. Yeah, I imagine that the canvas that you have at Walmart must be on a scale that you haven't worked on before. And I suspect also that the one critical difference in the White House is that you have politics at play. That's not to say you don't have politics in profit-making organizations, but I suppose you have a more obviously singular profit-making goal in a business like Walmart, Uber, or Lyft. The world is a little more opaque in the government in terms of how you're setting priorities and achieving goals. I think that's a good point. The one feature that is shared across these different orgs is the nature and manner in which they're siloed. And what I mean by siloed is every organization I've been part of, people are either explicitly or implicitly placed in silos. And it's very difficult to work across those silos. In government, it was the agencies. At Uber, it was marketplace and driver and rider and insurance, et cetera. Same at Lyft. And at Walmart, you have the same thing. So I think the biggest barrier to really making deep cultural impact and change across these orgs is the nature of the silos and how we can break down those silos and learn together. I think that's one of the biggest market failures or market inefficiencies I've seen in orgs. Absolutely. The other question that occurs to me, John, is that because alongside all your work at Walmart and others, you also continue this busy writing and speaking program. I mean, how on earth do you manage your schedule? (laughs) Uh, That's kind of you. I have a good team. And what I mean by have a good team is I have a good team at Walmart. And I have a good team here at the University of Chicago. And I have a great team of co-authors. People a lot of times don't understand. Economists write a lot about production functions and people talk about teamwork, but they almost view it as a normative problem. And they say, well, that's what should be, but here's what I do. So they write a model that says something that a rational actor or an, an optimizing actor should do, and then they take it back to their lives and they don't do it. But I, I do it, actually. So I think about when I hire somebody for my team, most of the time people hire others who look like them and talk like them. That's the last person I want because I'm me already. I don't need another me. I need to understand my comparative advantage, and I need to quickly understand the job applicant's comparative advantage. And then I need to say, does that fit? Is that a kind of person I need? So I'm starting up working with DARPA now. So DARPA is a great organization that gives billions of dollars for moonshots. And these moonshots, they do typically the resource allocation based on art. Like you have a nice piece of art behind you. That's great for hanging on the wall. But art isn't good for trying to predict what ideas will scale and what ideas are big. That's science, right? And that's what we're going to talk about in a few moments with my book. But the idea is... When I form my DARPA team, I need to hire three or four people to fit a production function that I'm imagining we're going to need. And that's the same anytime I write an academic paper. I used to write all of these academic papers mostly by myself. I had the idea. I went back to my office. I wrote down a theoretical model. I figured, how should I generate data? I go out to the real world, generate the data, and I write up the paper and it's by John List. And that's not easy to do is to have the idea, write down theory, generate the data, and then examine the data and interpret the data. That's better done with a bench. And and that's why I think more social scientists are moving to the laboratory model, because each of those components, people have a distinct comparative advantage. So when I think about each idea or each chore that I'm up to, that's what I do is I hire really good people and get people who have meaning of work and meaning who want to change the world, and then they'll come in and then there's hopefully benefits for everyone when we do this. So that's the secret sauce is I'm just using simple economics to build a team production function. 
But I think if other teams and companies would recruit without the bias which afflicts so many, then I think we'd be all the better for it and have greater, not only demographic, but also sort of cognitive, intellectual diversity as well, which is obviously the other critical side of the coin. We shall come to your book, as you mentioned, momentarily. I just wanted to ask one final question again about you, if I may, because all this stuff that we've been talking about is a mile away from your family background, which is fascinating, which of course is trucking. And I think it goes back to your grandfather, if I'm not mistaken, your father and your brother have been successfully or still are successful truckers but how did you take such a different path oh gosh i think it was because i really did not like blue collar work so when i was in high school i would have various jobs like uh, picking tobacco or detasseling corn or i worked in a warehouse a cheese factory warehouse driving a forklift i helped my my dad in the summer sometimes driving truck unloading truck and I just didn't like it that much. And I did find it, it's not that it was physically grueling. It was just that it wasn't challenging and I didn't learn. And when you're driving the truck down the road, it's kind of like one man in one truck. And it, it's monotonous. And it really never quenched my curiosity. Not that I'm some elitist. You know I'm not. I went to UW-Stevens Point. I went to University of Wyoming. And I'm lucky now to be at the University of Chicago. But I wasn't raised in the test tube of the Ivy League. I mean, I'm like the opposite. And I think what you brought up before about diversity of thought and diversity of where people come from and what are their lived backgrounds. Look, I became a baseball card dealer in the late 80s to try to raise money and try to keep myself going as an undergraduate in college. And then I realized this could be a great place to test economic theory. So I started to do it as an undergrad, and then I would bring those ideas back to the classroom And I'd give my professors grief at UW-Stevens Point about, I don't think that theory's right. And they would say, why? And I would say, well, I just tested it this past weekend, and here's some data. And their minds would be blown. They'd be like, what? And I would have the give and take between what I was learning in the classroom and what I was doing at those baseball card shows. And then I realized I could do that for a living. I could actually learn about economic science through that kind of test tube. And that never really was possible in the profession that my parents were doing. My mom was a secretary and my dad was a trucker. So that's great. And I celebrate them for that. I'm very happy with how I was raised, but it just wasn't for me. And it just wasn't intellectually stimulating enough to keep me going. I don't think I'm a good enough person to continue with life down that path. I had to try something new. That makes a lot of sense to me. Let's then indeed turn to your most recent book, The Voltage Effect, which in simple terms is about scaling ideas, taking them from a small group to a much larger one. But let me ask you simply, what interests you about the subject of scale? Look, I think the opportunity to change the world in a deep and positive way. Because what I had been doing since the early 90s was essentially like other academics, but I was doing it kind of in a different way. As you mentioned, I was using the world as my lab, but I was still generating data to test theory to write academic papers. And you typically do that in a form whereby you write the academic paper and you then send it out and hope that people read it. So I had done a fair number of academic papers on scaling. And I started to write those papers on scaling in part because I was having trouble scaling some of my own work. In particular, I started a preschool that opened up in 2010. It was a preschool for three, four, and five-year-olds. And I built that from scratch using a bunch of money from a very kind donor named Ken Griffin. And I built the Chicago Heights Early Childhood Center in partnership with Steve Levitt and Roland Fryer. And I built it kind of for three reasons. The first, I wanted to help Chicago Heights community because it's a very poor community. I wanted to test the education production function. How should we have young children from poor communities acquire human capital? And then I wanted to change the world with that curriculum. I wanted the thing to scale. So I accomplished the first two by 2014. But the scaling one, policymakers said, look, you have a great idea, John, but it won't scale. So then I started to get involved and interested in, well, what is the science behind scaling? And I started to think about, you know, that feature was in the White House. That feature is at, at the time I was the chief economist at Uber. We were facing that. And it was primarily art. 
It was people saying, move fast and break things, fake it till you make it, throw spaghetti against the wall, you know, whatever sticks, you cook it. And these are all artistic statements. And I never thought that that's how we should view implementation or view scaling. So that's when I started to write the academic papers. Okay, so we write a few dozen academic papers, and I just got the feeling that only three or four people were reading each paper. So I thought, okay, John, what do you want to do? Do you really want to change the world, or do you want to now keep writing academic papers that you feel are being ignored? So I said, well, I really want to change the world because I think this topic is important enough. That's why I wrote The Voltage Effect. And the idea is I want to take out all of the economies. I want to take out all of the math. I want to take out all the Greek symbols. And I want to unlock all the learnings that are in those academic journals that people who are probably listening in part and policymakers and businesses and VCs, I want them to see what we've learned as academics. And I truly believe that there are many, many more gems that are hidden all over the academy. But it's just that we don't value translation. We don't value people who will go and translate those insights to the decision makers. So then they're locked. And I didn't want my secrets that I helped to create with my co-authors to stay locked. That's why I wrote The Voltage Effect. So then give us a sense of what a voltage effect is. Absolutely. So I want you to think about voltage effect in two ways. One, what happens in the small is different than what happens in the large. That's the way I think of the term voltage effect. Now, the voltage effect can be a voltage drop, which is what we focus a lot on in our discussions in society. And what that means is it looked great in the Petri dish, but when I scaled it, wasn't so great. And the world is replete with these kinds of examples. But I also want to raise voltage gains. And a good example of a voltage gain is Facebook. So Facebook in the Petri dish looks okay. You know, it looks like May. Well, maybe. But when you scale Facebook, here's where we're talking about huge voltage gains, in part because of network externalities. You know, when Facebook is small and none of your friends are on it, it's not very valuable. But when it scales and all of your friends are on it, and all of your social acquaintances are on it, that's high voltage. And it's because of network externalities. As more and more people enter, that good or service becomes much more valuable to you. So there are signatures of ideas, and those signatures should be looked at scientifically because some of them lead to voltage drops, some lead to voltage gains. You mentioned move fast and break things mantra or other versions of that. I mean, I think that seemed to be very closely associated with Facebook in its early days. Apart from the fact that you referred to it as an artistic approach rather than scientific, I wonder whether from an ethical point of view, particularly with the business of such large network effect as Facebook has, whether that approach to doing business has more ethical issues as well as just scientific artistic ones. I think when you run really fast, and move fast and break things, you do things in unscientific way that is in many cases difficult to measure the potential damage that you've done to some people or some parties or some groups of people. And you say, well, I don't know. I don't think that was my fault. But when you actually do things in a scientific way and you're measuring, you can detail you know, which types of people are helped, which types of people are hurt. And you can think in a much more scientific way about how you want to scale. And if you want to scale, there are many ideas that should never be scaled because they never have a chance. But there are other ideas that should never be scaled because of the negative effects that they might have on some people. And you won't know about those unless you do it in a thoughtful and careful and scientific way. In the book, you describe the importance of a business defining its negotiables and non-negotiables, or in other words, the must-haves versus the nice-to-haves. And I really like the story you told of Jamie Oliver's, Jamie's Italian restaurant chain. A sad conclusion to it, for yeah, sure. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Just to qualify that, but this is a story of a failure to scale, which I think will resonate strongly with many listeners of this podcast who are very familiar with Jamie and his range of endeavours. But maybe you can share something of this collapse story as a means to bring to life the difference between negotiables yeah, and non-negotiables. So this is chapter three, and it's really about, are there situational features in the Petri dish or in the small that really made your idea a huge success that 
you could never replicate at scale. So think about restaurants. Several restaurants around are littered all over that open one restaurant, they kill it. And then they say, well, look, we have a million dollars in EBITDA with this one restaurant. If we had 10 of them, we'd have 10 million. If we'd have 100 of them, we'd have 100 million. I'm here to tell you that if that initial success was because of the unique chef, you're dead. You know, unique people don't scale. Unique people think they can teach others to be unique. Won't happen. Now, if that initial success was because of the ingredients and you can get those ingredients at scale, right? Those are the non-negotiables. The non-negotiables are you need to have these great ingredients. And if you can get those at scale, you got a shot. So the first part of the book is, does your idea have the signatures of something that has a chance to scale? The back half is about execution, but let's stick here for a few more moments because think about Uber and Lyft. You have Uber in London. So if you needed Michael Schumacher or Danica Patrick to be a driver, you're dead, right? Because those are unique humans. Uber works in part because everyday Joe, everyday Jane can get behind the wheel and you don't need a special input there. But to scale to the next level, let's be honest, they're trying to do autonomous. And that's to get over this, this 80% fee that they really pay to the drivers. But that scales because drivers, they have a lot of substitutes. So now let's go back to my pre-K that I started. I had to hire 30 teachers in that pre-K in Chicago Heights that I mentioned earlier. Started a pre-K, had to hire 30 good teachers. Let's say I tried to scale that around Chicago. That's what I call vertically scaling because I try to scale the idea in the same input and output market that I used for the Petri dish. Now I have to hire 30,000 good teachers. That's a lot different story than hiring 30. It's easy to hire 30 good teachers, nearly impossible by keeping in check with the budget to hire 30,000 good teachers. So what I should have done is I should have tested my program with the kinds of teachers that I'm going to have to hire at scale. That means lower quality teachers than what I used. I didn't do that because I wasn't thinking ahead in terms of what are the inputs that are important. It's a good teacher. What are the inputs going to look like at scale? They're going to be much lower quality than I used in the Petri dish. This is a problem now because I'm answering the wrong question in the Petri dish. I'm answering the question of what the best inputs does my idea work? That's a great academic exercise. It's a great efficacy test. But as social scientists, what we typically do is we do that efficacy test and we write it up and we forget to tell everyone else it was an efficacy test. So we do an A-B test and we don't really answer the question that we need to answer if we want to change the world at scale. So my suggestion here is add option C. What option C is what I call critical scale features. Do your A-B test, that's great, but bring in some of the flaws of what you're going to face or the constraints that you're going to face at scale, whether it's because of financial constraints, regulatory constraints, human capital constraints. Bring those back to option C and let's see how good your idea does with what I call policy-based features because we should be generating policy-based evidence. And that's chapter three. In the case of Jamie Oliver, there were a variety of factors which led to the downfall, some of which were management-driven. But I suppose you know, the correlative might be you'd say, well, if we started with a lower quality set of ingredients and the bar was set lower, I mean, that might have also failed the business as well because no one would have come in the first place. Who knows? You're right. So Jamie had two things going on, a unique chef and a great manager. And then those ended up at scale. They could be replicated. But the corollary here is all the same, whether it's a unique chef or a unique manager. If it's a unique human and you need that unique human as an input at scale, you need 10 of them or 100 of them or 1,000 of them, whether it's a salesperson, a clerk, a shelver, whatever, won't work. Yeah. And one of the problems, I guess, with early Petri dish scale is that it becomes very quickly seductive and dangerous for that. And oh, then you really have to realize when you kind of go past the point of no return and you're stuck. Oh, 100%. Look, once a manager gets like an idea that conforms to what they thought would work and they have a little bit of confirmation bias and then you tell them it works, now I'm running, right? I'm, I'm oh, not yeah. testing anymore. I'm running. 
We are jumping around big ideas, but one of the, I want to just touch on some of the other themes you talk about in the book. And one of the other key tactics you discuss to help businesses think about operational efficiency, of course, is the concept of marginal gains, a very established economic principle, but it sounds quite poorly understood in many business settings. And you've, of course, have applied it in project cost benefit analyses in the White House, as well as at Uber and Lyft. But just explain to us, if you would, what's the power of this idea? So now we're to the back half of the book, and and I like to think of the back half of the book as, you know, what are some economic principles or behavioral economic principles to help us lead a better life? You know, whether it's as an individual or a business decision maker. And one of the things we teach in Econ 101 is you should think on the margin. And we show our students, you know, how to think on the margin. We show it mathematically. And we show the beauty behind continuous functions and marginal condition, marginal benefits equal marginal cost. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful math. But when those same students who are super smart go out to the real world and try to apply it. And I'm talking about the president of the United States. He was an econ major back when I was in the White House. Talk about Logan Green, the founder and CEO of Lyft. He was an econ major. These are very, very smart and innovative people who have been trained economists, and they're not seeing the dollar bills on the ground with marginal thinking. Okay, so let me give you an example to bring it home. One of the examples that I talk about in the book, and that happened to me at Lyft. So there's a team called the driver acquisition team at Lyft, and their role, their job, is to bring in new drivers. Uber had a driver acquisition team too. So To make the platform work, you need a continuous flow of new drivers coming on the platform. So what did they do? They looked at mounds and mounds of data. That's good, right? We should be data-driven and evidence-driven. And they looked at these two different venues in which they acquire drivers. One is they place Facebook ads. So they looked at the data and said, look, the last thousand drivers that we brought in using Facebook ads, they cost on average $300. Okay. So then they looked at Google ads and they said, look, the last thousand drivers we've brought in using Google ads cost $400. So they said, John, Logan gave us a bunch of money. We're going to use Facebook ads. I said, well, what happened not with the last thousand like you have, but with the last 25? And they said, well, we don't have that, but we'll send it to you tonight. So later that evening, they sent me the data and they said, John, the last 25 drivers that we acquired using Facebook ads, they cost $1,000 each, not 300. And then when we looked at Google, the last 25 only cost 500 each. And they said, wow, professor, we get your point. We are now going to use Google instead of Facebook. And we wish we could go back in time to the last 25 because we would have move the Facebook money to Google ads. What I simply did for them is I sliced the data in a finer piece. Because most of the time people say, just get mounds and mounds of data, add data, big data are better. Big data aren't better if you're adding data from a long time ago that's not very informative of what the next decision will yield. What the next decision yields, that's marginal thinking. So what I taught them to do is move from average to marginal thinking, and you're literally picking up dollar bills. In every setting I've been in, people do not naturally think in a marginal way, and we need to do that more and more. And I talk about a memo that I wrote at Lyft. It's called the Adam Smith Memo. And look, what I just told you, this isn't the John List innovation. This is an innovation from hundreds of years ago that people found mathematically you yield optimal outcomes if you think on the margin. And that's how we as economists like to think. But people in the real world, and I think a lot of economists themselves even don't do it, but we need to train ourselves to do it in that manner. There's an analogy which I'm trying to re-piece together in my mind, but which is words to the effect that, you know, one times 10 and 10 times one, while mathematically identical in the real messy world, don't always equate to exactly the same outcome. But I think focus on the margin and not on the average, which is our sort of human tendency, which is to sort of default to an average. It's the the easy, obvious cut. It's easy, right? It's like an easy easy. cut. When you think about critical thinking, we're trained to be fast thinkers. And if you're trained to be a fast thinker, you use heuristics and you take shortcuts because they're, they're okay. You know, they're good enough. Not good enough in this area. It's not good enough for scaling. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, implicit 
in the book, despite our ambitions to scale, is the fact that we, of course, at some point have to face failure. And then, of course, you talk about the idea of quitting, and you are a proponent of the idea of quitting more. Why then is quitting actually for winners? Because that's rather counterintuitive, certainly to the Silicon Valley culture, which is all about sort of persistence till the end. No, no, 100%. Look, that's how I was raised. I was raised in Wisconsin, where you had this football coach named Vince Lombardi, who said, winners never quit and quitters never win. I'm sure you got rugby guys and, and soccer guys and cricketeers, et cetera, who say this, right? That's old school. You don't quit. Society has taught us that quitting is for losers. That's one reason why we don't quit enough. The other reason is our own fault. We neglect our opportunity cost of time. So an example can kind of bring that home. I just did a big survey of recent job quitters. And the number one reason is I lost meaning of work. Number two reason is I didn't get the promotion. I didn't get the raise. I didn't get along with a coworker. All the way down to I didn't like my cubicle. Every reason was my current lot in life got soiled. It was never my opportunity set got better. The opportunities in my field just grew and I took these opportunities. People don't mention that because that's not how they think. They neglect that if I'm in this job or if I'm living in this apartment, it means I can't be in that job or I can't live in that other apartment or I can't live in that other city. We're just built to neglect our opportunity cost of time. And because of those two reasons, those two combine to be very vicious in that they society tells me not to, my own instincts tell me not to, I'm going to stay static. I'm not going to change. So we systematically, there's science, and I talk about the science in this chapter. It's art when you say winners don't quit. That's art. That's on a poster. You probably had an inspirational quote at one point above your bed that said something about not quitting and persevering, et cetera, et cetera. I think Einstein had it right. Look, if you keep doing the same thing and you keep having failure over and over again, that's a definition of insanity. So what I'm telling people in business is dig in the hole for a while. But if there's an opportunity that there's a better hole and you can move, why keep digging in a dry hole? It doesn't make sense. And we celebrate, like every Olympics and every World Cup comes and goes, and there's a story about a person who persevered. And there's a 45-year-old who's a skeet shooter, and they persevered, they bagged groceries, et cetera, and then they celebrate that person. But where are the newspaper articles and the celebrations for the billions of people who kept going down a dry hole and kept failing? Where's their celebration? What do we learn from them? They're not, they don't even get the back page. So I, I want to put those people on the front page because our opportunity cost of time is too great. We have too many brilliant people who are doing dumb things and not pivoting fast enough. Well, there's huge survivorship bias, of course. It's the winners that write history, as the expression goes, whether in academia or in the real world, if I Absolutely. call it that. Now, there are so many subjects that I'd love to dive into further. I am conscious of the clock. I want to talk about incentives and charity and critical thinking and more about ride sharing. But I'm going to pick on one thing which does interest me when that relates to the last chapter of your book, yeah. which is about scaling culture. Yeah. And you talk about topics like trust, teamwork, recruitment style, amongst other. Now, you've, of course, as we know, you've worked as the chief economist at both Uber and Lyft. So this seems a lovely uh, case study to pick <laughs> on. And it sort of feels sufficiently juicy for our listeners. Now, of course, they seem radically different cultures. So let me first ask you, is Travis Kalanick, a former CEO of Uber, for those who don't know, is he the chauvinist bully of popular law or is that oversimplistic? Oh, that's oversimplistic. Travis is a really good person who has made some bad choices. Travis is brilliant. He's monomaniacal, and he's monomaniacal at the time about urban transportation. Travis is a scientist. He's data-driven, and Travis doesn't have all the answers. And Travis will argue, and I talk about that in Chapter 1 even, the intro about how I became acclimated to Uber, and it was a rough introduction from Travis. He gave you a rough ride in your interview. That's the story you tell at the beginning, isn't it? Yeah, no, and it's more than a story. It's, it was my reality, <laughs> yeah. my reality story. Yeah, so Travis is tough, but if Travis would have only released that letter that he wrote that I put in the last chapter, in chapter nine, that he wrote to employees and he wrote to the world, I think Travis's course and Uber's course would have been a lot different. I wish he would have released that letter. I think Travis knows he made mistakes. Travis knows he set up 
a culture that after he observed it, he knew it was too fragile and it wasn't inclusive. It wasn't diverse. And it wasn't even set up to be, let's say, to try to get people to their own frontiers because it was set up as combative. It was a Chicago economics old school seminar every day. And what I mean by that is think about Milton Friedman and Stigler and Becker and all these guys on a bad day who would get somebody in a room and they would just torture that person. That's Chicago Economic Seminar of a long time ago. And I know people. I was part of that in 2002 when I came here to University of Chicago for the first time and I presented a discrimination paper. I got a taste of that from Chicago Economics. So I think he's got a good heart. He made some bad choices. When you compare working at the two companies, which of Uber and Lyft was the more exciting place to be in the end? They're both wonderful in their own way, but I would say it was more comfortable working at Lyft, but it would be more exciting working at Uber, in part because it was still pretty early on when I started there, pretty high growth phase, private company, have aspirations to IPO, growth is just astounding, and ideas were bouncing off the wall, data was being used for every decision, and I think they were both exciting in their own way, and I think I truly learned about You don't really learn about the value of culture until you live through it. You know, a lot of times you hear people say, you have to have a lived experience to write about this academically. I don't in general believe that. I don't believe that to write about the gender pay gap, you need to be a woman, for example, or to write about being raised in a poor household like I was, you need to live it. I like fundamentally don't believe that, but I do believe that what you pick up through these experiences, they do impact how you do your research. They do impact how you write about your research and how you view a particular topic. Before I entered Uber and Lyft, I thought corporate culture was something that was just written about by people who wanted to plant flowers and it wasn't really important or real. But after living through it, it is real. And it was real for me and it was real for people who I was colleagues with. So I think I really came to respect and appreciate that from the very beginning, there are subtle things you can do, subtle features of the environment that can really impact the entire culture, and especially when you're trying to scale. And you talk about actually two opposing styles of working, competition versus Cooperation, if I'm pronouncing yeah, it. Yeah, no, that's I suppose right. That's right. Uber represents the first, which is more you know, departments and silos, employees incentivized to think alone and fight for their ideas, as you just described, versus, I mean, maybe Netflix or maybe even Lyft, but certainly I think you refer to Netflix yeah. in the book, which is like the cooperation culture where there's healthy competition, but it's highly collaborative. Can you say that one mode is definitively better than the other or can both succeed? Oh, gosh, I think both can succeed. I know the type that I would rather be in as a person and to get to my own frontier and where I want to build groups. But gosh, both can succeed and, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. But I think as we move into this new world where diversity, equity, and inclusiveness is more valued, and it's more valued by the new generation, and it's more valued by really highly competent workers who have a lot of human capital, you're going to see the latter, I think, play out more in successful companies than the former. Absolutely. And I'm going to ask you a last question, and then we'll do some quick fire. Sure. What do you hope the impact of the book is going to be? And indeed, what are you seeing already since you published it earlier this year? So that's a great question. You know, my goal was simply to add science to scaling. And I wanted to let people know that if they didn't like my science, which is an economic science, that's fine but bring your own science. We need scientists from every literature and every walk of life to be contributing to this area. Because for too long, scaling has been a bit like the old biblical passage, right? The pearls before the swine. The innovation is the pearls and the implementation and scaling is the swine. That's a wrong way to think about it. It's the pearls before the jadeite. And when you think about this as jadeite, that means we need to have science and we need to add science to scaling. So my overarching goal was let's add science to World Bank and academics and businesses and governments. And I think we're getting there. I I think that as I talk to more and more groups, we are getting some traction. A lot of work left. We're in the 
I don't know what it would be in cricket, but in baseball, it's the first inning, right? The very first of nine innings. And if we continue to move and we keep this momentum, I think we have a shot to have a real science of scaling and people thinking about this problem in a scientific way. First innings would work in cricket as well, if you ever want to use that very analogy good, alternatively good. from baseball, depending on who you're talking to. Should we do some quick fire to wrap up? Sure, I'd love to. Great stuff. Okay, what's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oh, gosh, I would say my wife and marrying me. I mean, anyone who would commit to a life with me, that's an extremely kind act. Oh, very modest of you, I'm sure. What's your most powerful memory? Oh, gosh, so many of them. But I would say when I traveled as a teen to Chicago with my girlfriend and we unloaded our truck by hand in the heat, which was about 110 degrees in the back of the van. And as the workers sat on the couch and watched us unload it, and I asked them, can they bring the forklift over and unload it? And they said it didn't work. So my girlfriend and I unloaded it all by hand. And then after we got it all off the truck, they went and started the forklift and took it back. And that was really a very strong memory in terms of insiders and outsiders and how somebody could be treated in such a cruel way because they were an outsider. We're delivering downtown Chicago and we were hicks from Wisconsin and we were treated in a very poor way. And it really resonated with me to help put myself in the shoes of others because I've never really been an insider until lately. Being at the University of Chicago, I'm kind of an insider now. But with that memory and others that have happened to me, have always been easier for me to put myself in the shoes of somebody who's really been treated in a cruel way. Yeah, you have perspective, definitely. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. Ah, it's another good question. I would say that my father was the arm wrestling champion in 1985 of the state of Wisconsin. And I was in the bar when he won the arm wrestling championship. And I always wanted, I saw my father, I saw him succeed, and I saw how important that was. And that's kind of boarding on the memory as well. But I saw what really hard work, and sure, it's an arm wrestling championship for the state, but I saw what really hard work can do. And, and that's sort of a moment in my life that was much more than transitory. And this is how I was raised. A lot of people don't realize, like, this is how a person like I was raised. And those are the kind of the memories and the life events that most people don't know about me. Yeah, paints a great picture. Wow. Which book do you gift most regularly? I used to gift Adam Smith, both Wealth of Nations and Moral Sentiments. But I moved away from that because I realized people weren't really reading it. And they weren't reading it because, look, Adam Smith is brilliant in many ways. He wasn't the most frugal with words. And when you tell a pin factory story, which I love, which really should be like three sentences to talk about specialization, and he did it over a, a long, long draft, it maybe became one of those books that was put on the shelf. And it was a signal rather than something to acquire human capital. So I began then to start sending more recent books. And one of my favorite is 30 Million Words, which my wife wrote. So that's a book that is about early childhood. And that's become my new favorite is to gift that because a lot of my gifts are now with colleagues who have children and they just had a new baby. So that's my favorite baby gift. Oh, great. Well, we have an 18-month-year-old, so maybe that's probably Very good. good. Give for me your address, and we'll send you out a signed copy. You don't need to go. Oh, perfect. Thank you. At least we, we can do that. At least we can. Oh, that's really kind of you. Penultimately, what's your desert island music? Okay, so this is a good question. Is it live music? So can I talk to the group, or is it on my machine? However you want to okay. interpret the question. Oh, so if it's live, it's got to be the Beatles, because I want to learn about all of their life events, and I like some of their music. If it was on the machine, it would probably be something like List. So List, I hope he's a distant relative. It calms me down and helps me think that this kind of music. Great Hungarian. But I think a lot depends on whether I have to hang out with them or not. If I have to hang out, it's the Beatles. If I have to just listen and with my own thoughts, it'd be List. Fantastic. And lastly, winding down away from work, how do you spend your time? Oh, gosh. So it was coaching my kids' sports teams. And that was more of a wind up, though, because as the coach, right. it would wind me up. I'd become a little bit too competitive. 
now it's become biking on the lake with my wife and also reading. Now, when I read, though, I tend not to read popular books. I tend to read textbooks and I tend to read academic papers. So really winding down is reading a textbook, either it would be a math book or an econ book, or if I want to branch out maybe a little bit in psychology. I like reading old psychology books like Vygotsky, and I don't want to give away too many secrets because I'm writing a new academic paper on some of the old psychological texts. So those are kind of what gets my attention right now the most. Fantastic. Well, with that, John, let me thank you enormously for spending time with me today. I think, you know, the sheer breadth of your research and reading interest is astounding and your curiosity to understand, I'd say, the human condition in all its quirks and eccentricities is really inspiring. And I should add that John's latest book, The Voltage Effect, as we've discussed, has become or is will soon become if it hasn't already become an international bestseller and is reviewed with only the best superlatives by the likes of, you know, Wall Street Journal and indeed Cass Sunstein, who calls it, quote, one of the best economic books I've ever read and an instant classic in behavioral economics, to which I would have course, concur, having read it recently myself. And of course, I think this is the point of it, but it is extremely accessible. And whatever kind of project you're involved in, you know, if you want to make sure it has the best chance of catching fire, you know who to turn to. So John, thank you hugely. Daniel, thanks so much for having me. And everyone stay consistently and constantly curious. Absolutely. Great stuff. One of the qualities I like most about John is his empathy for others. It shines through our conversation. As he says himself, he doesn't come from an elite academic background, his close family are truckers, and so while John is on the inside at Chicago now, he hasn't forgotten his roots. I can't help but feel his formative experiences enrich all his work in the field. Now next week we are switching gear and I'm thrilled to announce my partnership with top BS consultancy BE Works. Now over the coming weeks, and actually picking up neatly from John's work in the field, we're going to explore together real-life behavioural science in the field to understand how today's practitioners are doing it, what the biggest problems to solve are, what we're getting wrong, and where we're making strides. It's time to move away from small nudges and think about impact at scale. Now first up, I'm going to be sharing the stage with BE Works CEO, and that's the fabulous Warder Malik to set the scene and get stuck into some of these issues. I really hope you'll join us.